Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hi, welcome to the Reframers. We're so glad you're here. We are stoked you're here. This week, we are talking about journalism. All of the news that we consume is provided to us by our nation's and other nations' journalists. So we figure, why not you know, dedicate an episode to talking about journalism? And just so everyone knows, journalism and media kind of more generally is a topic that we're really interested in that we're probably going to talk about more. So this is kind of an intro into this overview of kind of what journalism is, how we think about it, and expect that we will be looping back to this at some point too. And probably in many iterations, I would imagine. I mean, journalism is one of those topics that you can talk about with so many different focuses. You can talk about the evolution of journalism. You could talk about cable uh, television. Uh, you could talk about print. You could talk about Twitter. So there's a lot of you know influence of journalism in elections. Like there's a lot of things. So expect this topic to come up probably you know several times in our in our lifetime of the reframers. Everybody gets a dollar every time you hear an episode of the Reframers where we say, we're going to talk about this one again, guys. <laughs> well, we're making good on the promise. So far, we've, we've done COVID twice and we've done gun control. So we're already starting to hit some of those things we said we would. As always, we never pretend to be experts. So that's a good thing. We always are going to come back to stuff because we inherently are learning more information and have new opinions about things. So we're excited to start from here today in November 2021, and uh, we'll see what we learn next time you talk to us. Yeah. So okay. So let's kick it off. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to start with our traditional start, which is what the founders thought about journalism? So uh, the freedom of the press is one of the rights that existed in the, in the minds of the founders and also just in like history from before we even had the constitution. Um, There's a quote here, I think this is from James Madison, that uh, freedom of the press, which includes the right to report news and circulate opinion without censorship from the government, that's an important aspect of it, was considered one of the great bulwarks of liberty by the founding fathers. What Uh, a word. Yeah, right? (laughs) What is a bulwark? (laughs) A bulwark is like a like a barricade or something that, that helps. I think it's used for military stuff where it's like oh, a, you're a, totally shi- right. a shield against something. A solid wall-like structure raised for defense. A bulwark of liberty mm-hmm. for, for defense of liberty. All right, I'm intrigued, go on. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons it was really important to the founding fathers is that during the time before the Revolutionary War, the British government was attempting to censor American newspapers, American media, by prohibiting them from publishing unfavorable information and opinions about the British. And so this is something that goes back before our founding um, in, in as far as freedom of the press. And uh, there were state constitutions that were back then like colonial constitutions that protected the freedom of the press even before the constitution. So it was something that's very, very important to the founding fathers and also something that they experienced both the persecution of freedom of the press and then also their use of the freedom of the press. During the ratification debates, which were the debates over whether we were going to ratify the constitution of the United States, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists published some of their arguments about this through the Federalist Papers. And then for the Anti-Federalists, it was through um, this letters from Brutus, which was a pseudonym that the Anti-Federalists used to write against the Federalist Papers. And they published these in the newspapers at the time and very much became part of the conversation of the ratification debates. So the press and the freedom of the press and the use of it was something that was very relevant to the founders' lives. Like you mentioned, Aaron, that it's built into our founding. It's, it's, it's the guns, it's the freedom of the press, it's freedom of speech. It's those things that are amendments one and two. It's, they're literally part of our national DNA is freedom of, of the press. 
And if anyone didn't know or forgot, the protection of the freedom of the press is in the First Amendment of the Constitution. It's one of those five rights that are protected. Okay, so my fun fact as a little breather, you're making me think of the silence do good letters. And anyone who loves national treasure as much as I do uh, will remember that good old Nick Cage talks about the silence do good. And she, it was a Mrs. Silence do good, the pen name used by Ben Franklin to get his work published in the New England Current. He was denied several times when he tried to publish letters under his own name. So he ended up doing this so that he could get printed in his brother's newspaper. Great movie, you know, super historically accurate too. Yeah, definitely. Fun to watch though. I mean, you can't deny it. <laughs> yeah, fun to it. watch. It's fun to watch. It's a good uh, one. This is a little bit silly, but I saw a funny thing the other day that said, you know, if you're ever going to invite somebody over that you want to like hang out with, wink, wink, um, to watch a movie, wink, wink, make sure you pick a trash movie that you're not actually going to want to watch. Because I had a guy invite me over one time to watch uh, a movie and we watched National Treasure. And I will tell you, we did not do anything except watch National Treasure because it is an amazing movie. So make sure you pick, <laughs> pick your not watch movies wisely. Cannot be distracted when you're watching National <laughs> Treasure. <laughs> Uh, this is not anecdotal. This, I mean, it's not my anecdotal. <laughs> Let me be clear. <laughs> it's not biographical. Yes. Yes. All right. My fun facts are over. Please move on. <laughs> well, you mentioned newspapers, and I just wanted to bring up the fact that in my favorite book, Hamilton, they talk a lot about the influence that newspapers had during this time. And we like to think that our time period that we live in currently is especially nasty or vicious in terms of the news. But these people, these flipping guys with their powdered wigs and their nice pressed coats were savage. They were absolutely just, they, they would print straight up lies in, in newspapers. And there's a fun period in Washington's administration where you have Alexander Hamilton, who is the Secretary of Treasury, and you have Thomas Jefferson, who's the Secretary of State, and each of them, you know, is literally an advisor to the president of the country. And each of them is kind of working at a side gig at a newspaper, writing op-eds, writing opinion pieces under pseudonyms, and essentially bankrolling these newspapers to talk trash, and in some cases, just straight up lies about the other in public. And at one point, Jefferson, I think, literally buys a newspaper so he could write back and basically clap back at Hamilton, you know, in the press, because that's, you know, there was no Twitter, there's no radio, there's nothing. It's that was the, the way the information got out. So we, you know, maybe the speed in which journalism gets spread around today is uh, quicker. But I think the nature of journalism in the country, while being protected from the onset, has not really changed very much from our founders, you know, uh, day. Yeah, that's a good point. I wanted to mention a little bit about how we protect the freedom of the press and just where we're at um, on that level legally. So there's a couple of really interesting Supreme Court cases that deal with the freedom of the press. And the two that I want to mention are both from the New York Times, um, which isn't going to be surprising. So the first one is New York Times versus the United States. And this was in 1971. Super interesting. Basically, there was a whistleblower from inside the United States military who had these documents that became known as the Pentagon Papers, which you may have heard of before. What they did is they had information on top secret Department of Defense studies of political involvement in Vietnam and military involvement. And it showed, the paper showed that the government knew that the war was going to cost more in lives specifically than they had been telling everyone in the public. And it implicated the administrations of like four or five presidents, like Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. Um, had and these papers showed that they had misled the public about um, the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam, and the government tried to obtain a court order preventing the New York Times from publishing information about these papers under the argument that it was going to become a national security risk. But the Supreme Court ruled in this case that 
the papers could publish the contents of these, you know, secret documents, the Pentagon Papers, without any uh, risk of government censorship. And so that was one of the really big landmark cases for protection of freedom of the press and from not having the government be involved in it. And then I wanted to mention one other case that deals with the New York Times um, and New York Times, you know, it's, it's, it could be any paper. It's just that that's the paper that was involved in these particular cases about what newspapers can't do, which even in this case, this is the New York Times versus Sullivan. And it was actually before the New York Times versus the United States case. This one was in 1964. And in this case, um, the New York Times had published some information about a um, political person, like a political official, Sullivan, and it had some incorrect information about like what he had said and who he was. And so he sued the New York Times for libel, which is making false statements publicly about people. And the court had a sort of an interesting ruling here. It said that if your newspaper, someone has to prove that you had actual malice um, in publishing a falsehood. So you knew it was false, and you publish it anyways, or you had a reckless disregard for the truth. So very high standard actually, as far as what newspapers can print. And there's some more protections if you're a private individual de dealing with private matters, you, you, there's a little bit higher protection, but if you're a public official and if you're doing things out in the public, there's an element of falsehood that we actually tolerate because you have to meet this really high standard for libel if you're going to actually sue a newspaper over what they say. So it's kind of like two sides of, of how we deal with the press. Very interesting. You know, that's pretty amazing that we have such a, a free press. I mean, truly, I, I think in all sense of the word, you know, we, we really do. But yet there's a Statista survey that's gone around that says share of adults who trust news media more, most of the time in selected countries worldwide as of February, 2021. So basically how much does each country trust their media? It looks like there's maybe 30 different countries on this list. You know, the ones you would expect, Portugal, Germany, uh, Poland, Austria, Canada, Turkey, Argentina. Uh, the very, very bottom rounding out this, this list is the United States with the lowest uh, percent of adults who trust the news at 29%. Uh, which is which is really incredible considering how protected our news you know media is print and uh, television and all of that we're the lowest in in all the surveyed countries which is kind of astounding when you think about it yeah that's really interesting being the lowest to trust our media I don't know that it's like a one-to-one -one comparison because how free our press is doesn't necessarily correlate with how much we trust it but it is an interesting thing to think about, like why our, our press is really free. Why is it that we really don't trust it? And maybe one of the reasons we don't really trust it is because it can say many, many things. That's kind of what I'm thinking as well. I mean, if you have a state run newspaper, right? I mean, imagine if North Korea was on this list. You had a North Korea newspaper that they are only printing the, the party line and the citizens in that country have no other alternative means of obtaining information you're probably going to have high trust in that newspaper because you literally don't know anything else. But here we kind of have the opposite problem where because newspapers can go and look into and print and newspapers encompassing, you know, other outlets, but news can print kind of whatever it wants to, as long as it is not violating that intentional malice, whatever it was you said, Aaron, that, that willing uh, malice standard, then, you know, maybe people see alternative views and they end up distrusting more so than trusting. That's a really good point. And it's very funny to think about what would make you have trust in the media. If you think, oh, I have more trust in the media, but it's the only source of media or there's only a couple. I mean, how would you even know not to trust the media versus if you have hundreds, thousands of sources, this is very cool. I'll share my screen in a little bit, but um, there's these charts that show media bias and you can tr track all these different places that you can get your news. And I've always found this really fascinating because I think it's important that everybody knows their own bias so that you can kind of either actively fight against it or own it. Or um, sometimes you're shocked by it. You might think, oh, this is pretty much you know, down the middle. And 
I just think you can get really stuck in an echo chamber. So I like seeing graphs like this where you can get a sense of, okay, do I, do I feel super secure and right in my beliefs and what I hear? And I trust everything I read, but then I find out that this is super left-wing or, or exclusively right-wing. So mm -hmm. I'll, sh I'll share my screen in a little bit for everybody um, who's watching on YouTube and we'll post it in our stories. Something I want to mention about just the freedom of the press, going back to that real quick, I saw an interesting study. This is by Freedom House, which is a U.S.-based nonprofit, um, a study from 2017. They looked at um, media environments where political news coverage is robust and uncensored and the safety of journalists is guaranteed. And they use that as their definition for a free press. And they found that just 13% of the world's population enjoys a free press which is really, really small percentage, kind of shockingly small percentage. It is just 13% of the world's population. And I thought that was kind of interesting to note, you know, we don't, we really don't censor our press like yeah. at all. Um, and I do think that's something that is very fundamental to democracy, whether you like what the press is saying or not. I think it's very important that we're not censoring it and specifically that the government is not censoring it. Oh my gosh. There's a super upsetting map at the museum yep. in Washington, DC, which is sadly closing, but you know, fingers crossed that maybe they're going to move like that stuff's not going away. Right. It, it's an amazing museum, but maybe this map and other items will go to other museums. I just hope we don't lose it all. And, and the ability to see it is incredible because it is very upsetting. Like I said, to see 13%, is that what you said? Like that's an insane yep. low amount of like the country, no, the world having access to, uh, well, I mean, we you take think about, it so for granted. <laughs> think about China, how, how many people China has. China's a billion, right? It's close to it. I think India's close to a billion. That's one seventh or one you know tenth or something of the world's population that doesn't have a free press. Right there, you're cutting out a huge chunk. It is amazing. And that, I was going to say that, that same thing about that map in the museum, which is so cool. It's this huge... I'm going to share story. my screen while we're talking. It's just incredible to see what what countries enjoy a free press and which ones don't. It's it's honestly incredible. And it can look really large because on on this traditional map that we're all used to, green is United States and Canada and and Australia, and those look really big on a traditional map. But keep in mind when you're looking at this, thirteen percent. That means all the rest of this partly mm -hmm. free and not free. That's an insane amount of red that we're looking. It's, it's all of Mexico. It's a lot of Africa. It's a lot of Eastern Europe and some of Southern South America. It's, it's significant and mm -hmm. it's worth mentioning. For sure. One of the freedoms I think we probably take for granted a little bit because we are inherently angry at the press and the media <laughs> all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think that's another thing that kind of goes back to the founding. Although it is interesting, I was thinking about this with like how we think about journalists, particularly investigative journalists, they're sort of on the same level of being sort of praised the way like a teacher or a doctor might be for having a profession that is for the good of society, um, that's doing work to actually help society. And we have movies about this and shows about journalists. Like we find what they do really interesting and necessary. And I just have to mention, we were talking about this movie the other day, but if anyone hasn't seen Spotlight, really, really good movie. It was an Oscar winning movie about the Boston Globe's investigative reporting on the sexual assault and misconduct of the diocese in Boston. And it was a super duper important story and something that you can't get unless you're doing this really deep, intensive investigative journalism that would still exist today for sure, but unfortunately is not as supported as some of the other news media that we consume. And I think we can kind of go into talking about this. It has a lot to do with the internet and the advent of the internet and what sells quickly. And so I kind of want to talk about the transition between like print media into news shows and then into the internet and what you mm -hmm. guys think about that. So, yeah, I think that is great space to begin talking, but I do want to maybe if I could suggest we talk about something just real quick before, because somebody said earlier, a few minutes ago, trust. And I think that that's the foundational essence of journalism. 
because if you don't trust what is being reported or who's reporting it, then you kind of don't trust what's being reported, right? And so it, it defeats the purpose of the journalism. So how do we establish trust in our in our journalism? And the things that I was thinking of is is who's delivering the news, right? A reputable, credible source. So the the body that's that's preparing it, as well as the individual, because I think the individual matters as well. Um, especially if you look at um, some of the like early cable news anchors, they really were played it really straight and narrow. Um, I'm trying to think of what the guy's name was. Cronkite. Yeah, thank you. So it's like who's the individual delivering the news, and then also this is something I found that is kind of more of of another journalist saying this is trust is presumed to be a product of adhering to standards and neutrality. I wanted to kind of throw that out there and see what you guys thought about that, because those are the things I could think of that really would lend themselves to me trusting a journalism outlet, whether it's print or video or whatever. It's a really good question. The thing that comes to mind for me immediately is I think it's fascinating how much we know about people now. You don't, you don't necessarily get that back in time where you don't know every aspect of a public figure who's bringing you the news. You don't know every aspect of their life, their upbringing and their wife and kids and where they live and what they donate to and what they do on the weekend. And so my initial thought was, I trust somebody who I, I know a lot about who they are and mm-hmm. I know how they think. And therefore I trust them to deliver me the news or give me a recommendation or whatever it might be. And that's kind of a weird thing to be my gut reaction. And so I wanted to just sort of marinate on that for a second. Cause I mean, I think other things would be like their level of schooling, uh, how long they've been in the industry. Um, like I mentioned before, what network they work for or have worked for that, that is going to affect whether or not I trust them. Yeah. It's interesting. You kind of talking about like, well, what, what sources do you trust? I don't watch any cable news or any news shows, especially the commentary ones. I kind of can't stand them. So Mm -hmm. when I think about news, the thing I'm thinking about is like reading articles, reading and mostly I read articles online. So like, that's how I do it. I don't research journalists that I'm reading. I don't even know the names of most of the journalists that I'm reading. Like I couldn't name you five journalists off the top of my head, probably, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a bummer. I wish I knew more names of journalists, but The thought of having to do that on top of already trying to be critical about news sounds really exhausting, even though it's probably a good thing to do. And so the way I approach it is just by using different sources. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to read a New York Times article, I also want to read a BBC article. I want to check out, figure out what a conservative leaning paper is writing, like maybe uh, what is, what is a conservative leaning, like is the Washington Post considered conservative leaning? I don't even know. Like I literally don't know because I just kind of like try and read a range. And then I avoid, I avoid certain ones that I think are biased, like Fox news or ABC there, you know, sometimes I'll Mm -hmm. read those articles. I like knowing what they're saying. Actually, I think it's helpful (laughs) to see how they're framing issues. So I know how other people in the country are thinking about it, but I kind of don't consider those to be great sources just in general. And so Mm -hmm. those are ones that I'm not going to go to. So I I guess for me, it's more about which institution is publishing the news, not the individual people. And Mm -hmm. maybe I would care a lot more about the individual people if I listen to more individual people. But I think that mostly happens through kind of the talk news, radio shows and and in-person media. Mm -hmm. This feels like it could be a good time for me to share my graph. So I'm going to do that now. This is a media bias chart. And as you can see, there's a lot of media out there. I was doing some research because I saw this years ago. And I think that they said that they look at like thousands of different sources. So we we can get, (laughs) we could get super deep into this, but just to give you an idea It lists all of these different media sources. The left ones are more left-leaning. The middle is more moderate. And the right is more right-leaning. If you're closer to the top, you've got mostly analysis or a mix of fact reporting and analysis. And up at the top in the middle is kind of the sweet spot where you want to be and where I would recommend you get some of your news, at, at least some of your news, preferably most of your news. 
So this site is very easy to find. I think I just looked up was media bias chart and it's adfontsmedia.com. Hmm. So they have a interactive version where if you wanted to type, you talk about New York times all the time. So I'm going to go ahead and hit it Skews left in the top. Yep. Yeah. And so it skews left in the top and it, you can see this type key most reliable for news is that green section, which is great. There's also a yellow section, which says reliable for news, but high in analysis and opinion content, which is worth noting. And then you've got this larger section where most of our uh, news segments are in with some reliability issues and or extremism. And then you've got this very Hmm. scary section down here that says serious reliability issues and or extremism. So it's, it's difficult to express how important I think it would be for us all to talk about that we get really caught up in our own echo chamber. And I'm typing Fox over and over again, just to give us, oh, I've I've run out of space, Mm -hmm. but just to give you a sense of, there are people outside of our generation, because Aaron, I'm much like you, I get a very quick little, and that's even another conversation, but I get a quick email daily from the skim or from New York times that tells me a a handful of highlights about things I should know or things that are happening. And that's a lot of times all I learn for the day. And that's if I read it that day. So we're not really living in the world anymore where any of us uh, of the millennial and under generation have TVs on in the background everywhere we go. I know sometimes in workplaces or um, like an office, there's a TV on all the time and you could go to bars or restaurants and there's TVs on. But I think it's interesting how much news people are getting in, and in different ways. Like you were talking about the, the advent of new media. I feel like I need to describe this chart a little bit for people who are not watching it on YouTube and just give some of the names here. Um, so there's reference for one, the New York times, um, that we, that we pulled up it's skewed left, but it's in the top part of the chart, the top skew left of, you know, news that is mostly, what is it? It's mostly a, analysis, mostly analysis. Mm-hmm. Mostly analysis and facts. And then they're like directly across from the New York Times on this chart. So to the right is the Wall Street Journal, which also looks like it's mostly news and facts, but just falls to the right of the line. But those are actually very close. Both of those papers mm-hmm. are very close to the center line. So it's just mm-hmm. kind of interesting to see the comparison. And then just so people know, at the very top of this chart, which would be are like theoretically the most unbiased is AP Reuters. And then right under that is the BBC. So the, just some interesting, I think, points of the, the big news that you might consume. That's kind of where they fall on this analysis chart. Yeah, and I've heard really good things about PBS NewsHour, and that looks to be what's right at the top as well. So I'll stop sharing my screen, but I Very encourage you guys to check it out. So I think that I want to go back to the idea of print media and then where print media kind of leads us into the news media. And I, I'm using news media as like the, the online, no, not the online, as the um, video like the platforms. Yeah, like the net, thank you, the network platforms. Mm-hmm. So network platforms actually cite to print media a lot, more than I think we realize when we're watching them or listening to clips of them. And I have this great quote. It's from John Oliver. He does a little piece about journalism where he claims profoundly that he is not a journalist and people should not treat him as a journalist. It's pretty funny. There's actually like some debate about that. I would probably not consider him a journalist because he is speaking from a very specific perspective, but his team, his team does a lot of investigative reporting. So it's kind of interesting to think Mm -hmm. about, but he has this great quote that says, The media is a food chain, which would fall apart without local newspapers. And I think that that's really true if you don't have the original reporting, because the local newspapers are close to the story in a way that the national networks are not, then you really don't have sort of this close level of reporting. And I think it's a huge problem as everyone I think does, that we're actually losing a lot of these local print media newspapers. I have a super anecdotal example, but it's interesting. In my hometown, we used to have three newspapers. I'm from Tahoe, so we had a paper in Incline and in Tahoe City and in Truckee, spread out places. 
different types of cities related, but not all the same. There is now one paper for that whole area and like one page, a one page print, I think in incline. And it's just, that's over like maybe 10 years and it's just, it's a small area, but it just shows how it's condensing really aggressively. And people are not leaning on print media in a way that they used to. And I think the reason I'm like harping on this is because I think that print media tends to be less biased because it's reporting on more local stories for the most part. And it's not up trying to make the sensationalist headlines the way the networks are, because that's what sells more. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I want to also consider the difference between print media and digital media. But if you want to say anything about that, I'm willing to give you a chance. I think it's super true. And one of the things that maybe some people are learning this, but I used to print a newspaper. When I was in college, my job where Cass and I met, I was in charge of printing our school's newspaper, the Mustang Daily. By then it was not daily anymore. So that was already starting to go on its way out. But it was the only student run, full color, written, reported, photographed, and printed newspaper. So end to end was all students in the whole country. Uh, So shout out to Cal Poly for that. But by the time I was running that operation, it was down to a couple days a week. And then since we've graduated now, the paper is even smaller than it was. It was, I think, a, a 12 page Now it's even smaller and it's not even printed by students. They got rid of the press that I used to work on. So no question that newspaper print is shrinking anecdotally and and even in in the mainstream. And so I think that that is one of the reasons why our news is probably so untrusted is because these major networks have had to try to adapt. And they've done that by a few things. Some of those are shifting to video. Some of those are shifting to newsletters, but a lot of it is shifting to online and trying to you know, get engagement and get clicks. And that's Twitter and Facebook and, and all the rest. And so in the last 20 years, probably we've seen a huge decline in probably the objective news reporting that starts from the ground up and a shift to the headline inducing shock and awe type of journalism that flashes across Twitter every day. And this makes sense when you think about how the internet works because it is driven by interaction with posts. And so the incentive for the news outlets is to have posts that are going to have a lot of interaction, which means lots of likes and lots of shares. And the posts that tend to get that kind of attention are the more sensationalist posts on whatever side that you're looking at. And so we don't have the same incentives to actually do unbiased reporting because it just doesn't get as much interaction obviously is a huge problem. I mean, I think about it also just with like Twitter, Twitter, especially at the beginning, I think maybe less now, but, but maybe even not is like a big deal in news and, and media. There's so much news that comes out of Twitter and it's how how you can post however many characters. I don't even know how many characters you can post on Twitter. You can't tell a news story between that. You can give a headline, but that's That's not going to tell you. Yeah. What, what you actually need to know and headlines as we should know can be really misleading about what is actually going on. Yeah. Just a fun side note. When I started doing my prep for this week's episode, the very first two articles that I tried to look into for research were behind a paywall. Just I'll leave that there to marinate. This is an article by Neiman Lab. They're doing a study that is based out of the University of Wisconsin. They said that they did a survey of 42 journalists, half of them designated as engagement oriented and the other half traditionally oriented. And this is specifically journalists being asked about the crisis and trust that our our journalism is facing in the country. Based on a rhetorical analysis, what these journalists said via interviews, and as well as what they did via hundreds of pages of website materials, uh, social media, conversation threads, et cetera, the authors developed a picture of two camps of journalists, both deeply concerned about the crisis of trust in journalism, but with different ideas about what should be done about it. And basically the conclusion from this this survey was that the engagement-oriented journalists were trying to establish trust by building a relationship through engagement with their audience. So even if they weren't maybe as factual or they ha- if they la- had more opinion come into their pieces uh, or if they were interested in more of the conversation rather than just reporting, you know, whatever it is they're reporting, 
they felt like, oh, we're getting trust because we're developing a relationship with our reader or with our audience. And then the more traditional camp said, we need to go kind of the exact opposite way, be transparent, less objective, more, you know, just double down on reporting the, the news, basically reporting what's happening and less of our input or, or influence into the story. And I thought that's really interesting because I feel like that in a sense you know, as a little microcosm does kind of break down into, you know, the problems facing our journalists landscape. If you want to hear more about this phenomenon of, of what motivates a newsroom, Barry Weiss is a really interesting person to look up. Uh, she was a, a New York times reporter who after three years of working at the times resigned uh, voluntarily. And she wrote and published a very, I think, interesting and, and thought-provoking resignation letter that cites and faults the New York Times for a lot of not dealing so well with the decline in journalism, basically catering to a specific audience and not learning the right lessons of listening to what the country is looking after. And it's a very interesting read. So I would encourage people to read her resignation letter, but she talks about how the motivation has shifted away from advertisers paying to get into your newspaper, you know, on the pages of your paper that is distributed to millions of people every you know week or every day. And now it's online, it's clicks, and it's pleasing the right group of people. And so you know they've moved to a subscription-based model. And that very much changes the landscape of if you're based off subscriptions, you want to have people pay to read your paper. So you want to have the right type of reporting for that. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to go check that out. That's interesting because I didn't I hadn't thought about the fact that they do have to sell themselves. So if it gets more competitive here, then somebody has to do this to keep up. Somebody has to do that to keep up. Next thing you know, right. things things are boring if they're reporting the news straight and you can't survive. And it's really interesting too, because the solution, I guess, to this would be to have more money in newspapers so that you can actually support this kind of journalism. But there's issues with that too, because wherever the money comes from, you're going to have biases. And this is a big deal as well. You know, there are newspapers that are owned by billionaires. So for example, one that was a really big deal was Sheldon Anderson, who passed away, it had acquired all of the newspapers in Las Vegas, basically, and became this media mongol in Las Vegas. And there was a lot of reporters who came out later saying that the newspaper leaned on them to report Mm -hmm. stories that dealt with him and his businesses in a particular way and that they had asked for their names to be taken off those stories that got changed that they had written Mm -hmm. and they were allowed to do that so that's another really big issue you know there's other you can there's like left-leaning ones you can uh, point to as well like Bezos or Bezos yeah buying the Uh, Washington Post like are you kidding right (laughs) Bloomberg but Bloomberg owned Bloomberg before. Yeah, Bloomberg owned Bloomberg before, but it's still like a millionaire with a particular view on things who who wants the news reported in a certain way. And even if it's not a huge bias, it's still a bias. It's still not totally subjective. And the journalistic integrity really is put into question when you have those sorts of owners for news. But- Mm -hmm. You know, what's the other what's the other solution? I mean, maybe it's that we as individuals need to support newspapers individually more than we do. I think that is actually a reason. I mean, like Zach, you mentioned paywalls mm-hmm. in front of news articles. And it's like, yeah, that sucks. But it's also like we want to support this as a society. And if we think that there's good journalistic reporting happening, but we're just being satisfied with the type of news that can just come to us in little pieces and little bites off of whatever some senator said one day, then Mm -hmm. we are going to get complacent and we're not going to be in, we're not going to be incentivized to pay for these other services when like, really that's probably where our news should be coming from is these services that are going to do the deeper work of actually looking into the facts in a way that the news outlets are kind of not doing. They're just turning around whatever, what some congressman said and criticizing it. That's like, 90% 90% of what right. the news outlets are doing right now. Right. I think a major issue that I have with the cable news space is exactly what you just said, that you have the talking heads that are up there. It's all the same, right? You have the camera set up and it's on like some offside of the Capitol building. And when, you know, Speaker Pelosi comes out or, or 
Mitch McConnell comes down or whatever, you know, or it's a lot of times it's not them because they're doing stuff, but you know, D or R Senator Congressman comes out and they say, what do you think about Joe Biden's build back better plan? And then there's a comment and inevitably the comment, if you're the same party as the person whose planet is, you're like, this is the best plan on the planet. Like, well, thanks. Uh, if you're the other side, it's, this is the worst plan ever made. Okay. Well, thanks. And then they go and talk about it. Like I can read what the person said. I don't need you to tell me what it is. They said, I, they said it, I can interpret that the way I want. No, that's not to say opinion pieces aren't important, but I think, you know, like maybe the, the wall street journal, where for me, at least the economic issues do require a little bit more analysis. I appreciate that in terms of these people are, you know, journalists with a little bit of economic economic background, so they can analyze, you know, something like a tax plan and say, here's what we think the effect would be. Okay, that's that's useful. But just a pundit talking about a quote or you know a, a luncheon or something like that is not really news. It's just like I don't know. It's like a media sporting event. <laughs> yeah, and it's really interesting now that we brought up Congress or branches. This is great. There's this concept that I think is really interesting of the media in journalism being like basically a fourth branch of government mm-hmm. that checks the other branches. This is something that different people have called it different things. We think it may have originated with Edmund Burke who called the press the fourth estate and the estate mm-hmm. is one like a British term based on how their system works, but you can analogize it to the United States. And I think it, this press has certainly done that for large periods of our history of being a check on the government, of breaking stories about what the government's doing, of mm-hmm. communicating people's opinions to the government in a way that sometimes mm-hmm. it's not heard. Um, and so I think that it's actually a really, really important aspect of our democracy. And I want to make sure it's protected, but I also want to make sure that it's reporting with integrity. And I think it's just a really, it's a tough situation right now because I don't know like you said and like we cited people don't trust the media and they Mm -hmm. are angry about it it's not that they just don't trust it everyone is like pissed about it and I don't really know like how we get back from that how we get back to a place where we actually are like trusting journalists and believing in the integrity of the press okay but so let's talk about that a little bit because that's kind of where I get back to the the meat of our our mission, right? As the reframers, mm-hmm. we try to reframe how we think about things like, hey, you get news that says my guy sucks and is the devil. And hey, I get news that says your guy sucks and is the devil. So we clearly have nothing in common and you're probably the devil too. So we just shouldn't, we just shouldn't talk about this. That's not an exaggeration of why we started this. It's literally Thanksgiving table talk where you either have a blowout or you just avoid it. And I think the media is a huge, huge part of that because how else are we finding out about all the things we should be mad at each other about? So I'd love a prescription from Mm -hmm. you two reframers. Not that we can solve anything. We've said a million times we're not experts, but, but I do think that our generation especially is coming through and seeing the way some things are. And maybe this is how it always goes, but we're dissatisfied right? We don't want to live like this. This feels like we could do better. So what would, what would be better? What could we actionably be working on and doing to not fall into this? I mean, it's a great question. I think if you solve that question, you solve American politics, because I don't think there's an easy answer. I think that one of the things as you started asking your question was, I just found out about this today, and I am curious to take it. Maybe for our season finale, we can do like we did uh, for the producers choice episode and take this Pew Research poll on political typology quiz. And basically it goes down and breaks down kind of like the New York Times when we did of how many Americans fall into these kind of camps and four, yeah, there's like four conservative, four liberal, and then kind of like a middle. I think the problem is, is that the, the people on the side don't find a lot of reasons to overlap. And I don't know how the media can help bridge that gap because it is a gap. And I think that unfortunately our media has a vested interest in catering to people that agree with them or disagree. I mean, there's famously Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN was stoked that Donald Trump was running and 
his network pushed really hard in the 2016 presidential election to cover Trump in a way that was great for CNN's ratings. So CNN had literally a hand in, you know, Donald Trump ascending to power, which is ironic because then they spent the next four years railing on, on the president every chance they could, because again, it was good for ratings. So the things they reported weren't libelous necessarily. They're heavily steeped in opinion. And so now you have us at 29% bottom of, you know, all developed countries in terms of institutional trust in the press. I don't know. I think that we, that's pretty grim. Um, it's just a tough, it's a tough place to, to be. I think that we can actually demand more of ourselves as citizens. One of the reasons why sensationalist media is such a thing is because it's what we ask for. That's what we are being drawn to. That's what we're sharing. That's what we're clicking on. You know, if we had more self-control about not leaning in to those like grabbing headlines that are that we know are biased because it's obvious from the face of the headline that they're biased maybe we could actually affect some change here because it's the news is working like a free market too we're responding to to things that were i don't know that that seem more interesting to us and so i think that we as millennials who get more of our news from the internet can be aware of this because we're the ones interacting with the internet. We can know that when we share an article, it really does make a difference and be careful about what we're sharing on social media or on our other platforms. Um, unless you know like, that you've vetted the source that you've read the whole article and not just read the headline and seen what it says. I think that we can check ourselves in some of this and maybe eventually that will actually like help filter up that that's a little bit naive and maybe a little bit idealistic but i think that we can be involved here and i also think that you know you can look at those charts of that we mentioned before of the different news medias and where they fall and make sure that you're supporting the news media that is in the center that is really trying to report the news in a more unbiased way and maybe buy subscriptions of those outlets so that they're supported financially um, and not focus on the ones that maybe you agree with a little bit more, but are not as subjective. So I think that there are some practical things that we can do that might be able to influence this down the road. But if we start in a position of, well, you know, we don't trust the media and there's really nothing that we can go to from here, then we're kind of already like, that's, that's a dead end to start from. So we're kind of already at like a bad spot. So I think that we can look for what could be positive ahead. That's well said. I, I think maybe I am a little cynical because I, I think that's a really high bar to try to reach. You know, Pandora's box is open and I don't know how you put that cat back in the bag. I mean, I, I think I told the story in the COVID episode of somebody saying that some ingredient in COVID is linked to something that causes like Alzheimer's. And I was like, come on, no way looked through like three or four different sources and found that the guy had cited himself and he was discredited and all this stuff. But that took, I'm not going to say it took a long time. It took me like 20 minutes, but there's so much that we're, we're trying to drink from a fire hose of news. And so I think it's really asking a lot for people to try to do that for all their, for all their news that they consume. And I, I would hope that we could come up with like, here's a non-biased or here's one of the accounts I follow on Instagram was like, I think it's called something side by side or something like that. And it brings like a topic and then it has like from the left and from the right. And it pulls quotes from a couple of left leaning sources, whether it's uh, journalists or elected representatives. And then it says like, here's what each side is arguing. And then also Sharon says so. Uh, Instagram account and and other, I think she does other stuff now too. She's a great resource too, because she does, I think, break things down and it's hard for me to tell like what way she leans, but she's really factual and really great. So, I mean, that's, that's my instinct is like, we need to have better sources. Sure. But like, even with that Instagram example, the accounts that you choose to follow also affects like how many other people see them and how many shares they get. And so I think you can be self-critical on, okay, but which accounts am I following? And is this an account that I should be following? Or is it just kind of biased and is stuff that I like to hear? 
And I, you know, I think that's a question that's worthwhile to ask. And then again, being critical about when you share things that there's a personal responsibility mm-hmm. aspect in that. If we weren't sharing with clicks and likes and, and posts, then some of these news stories wouldn't take off the, the way that they do. And so, you know, I do think that there's some on us to be able to focus on that. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with following certain accounts that are news or political, but just mm-hmm. for reference, I don't follow any, and that's on purpose because I don't trust even the ones that I would trust off of Instagram. I don't really trust because it's just not enough room to be able to mm-hmm. tell a full story. And so things will pop up on my search, but you know, I don't, I don't think it's helpful for me following those accounts because that's not the news that I, I want to choose to consume. Okay. So I have a question then, because I think what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's, it's a good prescription for trying to fight this problem that we're facing, but what happens when the news is wrong? And that's what I, I think I'm struggling with because for example, like let's take the news is not incentivized to be correct, but like factually correct anymore. They're incentivized to be first. I mean, I think being wrong so many times diminishes your credibility. So maybe saying they're not incentivized to be correct is not entirely false, but there is a heavy incentive to be first. Let's let's put it that way. So for example, like this, this migrant story where it came out that the border patrol in like San Antonio was whipping migrants with horse whips as they came across the border. And there was the picture of the border patrol guy on the horse with the whip, like mid motion, it's all whipping around like a snake. And the migrant is like trying to like get out of the way and it comes out and it's a, I mean, it, that story spread like wildfire. The photos were everywhere, racist border patrol, whips, migrant, like they're, the, it, it literally spread like wildfire. And it turns out it was false. It was false. That whole thing was on video and the guy was using the whip to, to navigate the horse, didn't ever, you know, touch the, the migrant that was trying to cross, but the damage has been done. So I, that's, I think what is hard to fight against is because the news has such an incentive to be first that it's like, once they're out there, they get the clicks moving on to the next thing. There's not a real incentive for that to be right, or there's no punishment for them if they're wrong entirely true though because certain news sources have just become known to be really biased like fox news for instance i don't think that people there's they don't have the same like journalistic integrity as some other sources so people might still listen to them but they're going to be criticized for how they present news and um and i just you know i like you know now that the story was false. I mean, how long did it take to come out that the story was false? My guess is it's not that long. And so I think that there is correction that happens in the news market, if you will, between these news sources. And if it's a really big story, particularly of like international, that that deals with international law or big federal things, it's going to be a lot of different news networks or papers reporting on it. And I think that you can diversify your sources when there's something like that. The one-off news stories like that, like that happen on the right or the left that are sort of sensationalist, like those are, they are going to happen. They're going to happen. If that story had been true, like, yes, I would have wanted to know about it. I, I didn't hear about that. I totally believe that it spread like wildfire. I didn't know about it. But, um, you know, I think that it's, it's also being like, critical as you can be but again like the the truth did come out about whether about it actually being a false story so i guess i'm not like i don't know it's bad it shouldn't happen but i think there's correction within the the landscape of news for that kind of thing i think i mean i i it took i think like three or four days for finally for all the information to get filtered out and downstream and um but I think in a lot of respects, like the damage was was done because then you had the administration, you know, the Biden administration saying, we're starting an inquiry, we're disallowing horses at the border now um, in this area. So there was there was real like policy ramifications for the story being wrong. And and it wasn't it wasn't Fox News report, it was you know the 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 middle center, you know, left-leaning from the chart, you know, Washington Post, New York Times that were supporting this as being something that happened. And I just think by that point, you know, it's, it's harder to issue a correction because if anybody sees it once they have seen it, now you have to go back and get all those people to see the correction, which is probably just not going to happen. So. Okay. I, but 
but I agree with Aaron. Like the, not that I disagree with you, Zach, for the record, I did see what you're talking about and I did freak out. Oh my God, that's terrible. I, it, it conf- immediately confirms all the things that I, and then it turns out not to be true. So you're right. You've already made your, um, your opinion in your head. You've formed your feelings around it and you're enraged or it goes directly mm-hmm. with what, like, I get that that's super dangerous. And I think that there's a couple of things that Aaron's saying that are, are actually prescriptive for that. The first is to find sources that you can trust. I think I'm, I'm, I'm literally taking notes because I, mm-hmm. you guys are saying such good things, get news from multiple places. Don't trust everything full stop. Be aware of the lens through which you heard something and do not be afraid to fact check. So if I see something like that, that's huge, right? Like that would be a big flipping deal if that were true. So my instinct, and and this took time to get to this, is I think my instinct from years ago was send it to somebody or to repost it or something and be like, oh my God, can you believe this thing? And then I share my opinion about it. And then I move on with my life and I'm just Mm -hmm. mad about it. Or I'll tell somebody in the grocery store or whatever. Instead, if we worked on our instinct being, that's so crazy. What if it's not true? Could that really be true? And then do your fact check, look it up, see if you can figure it out. And then last but not least, don't be afraid to be wrong. Be able to listen and be critical of your own beliefs. Don't take it personal if you thought it was true and it turned out not to be. What mm-hmm. are you out? You didn't write the news. You didn't report it. It's okay. And I think that if, in addition to all of that, like that goes hand in hand with holding the news reportings accountable. If we're upset that they're trying to be first or that they're purposefully posting things that are sensational or misleading, we mm-hmm. can get on them about that. And then hopefully the free market like leads us to, we like, don't use that service anymore. They don't get clicks. They don't get ad revenue because nobody trusts them anymore. And I would hope that us being critical about it and working on it and not sharing stupid things would put them at a disadvantage where they can't sustain it. Maybe another thing is we institute like a, a weight recommendation. If you see something that you want to share, like you, you save it and you share it a day later, once you've had a chance to go back and see, like, maybe, maybe there's more information about it by now. And so rather than just like hitting that share button or the like button, even you just like hold off and then revisit. I just don't think there's anything wrong with being wrong. I, two, two examples there. These are silly, not silly. One of them's not silly. The first one's silly. There was that, there was a viral video of a uh, guy recording a girl acting all hood, walking up to him being like, you hit my car. And she's in a oh. regular car and she has rear-ended him in his Lamborghini. And it's ridiculous. And she's totally caught. And we're all laughing at this ridiculous girl. And I said this to Zach and he says, another video came out and she, he did hit her. He hit her first. He cut her off. And then she hit him because he cut her off. Like that video that you saw is completely misleading. And you formed a full out opinion about her and her driving. And we made all these jokes about her insurance company getting the call. You hit a what? A Lamborghini? And that's a silly option. But like, I am, I remember feeling defensive. Like Zach caught me in my, <laughs> like I had lied or been caught in my stupid. I was like, this, this affects me not at all. I am not the driver. I'm not the one who faked it. It's just a thing that I thought was true that ended up not being true. Mm -hmm. We can all learn to move on from things like that, or even we don't have to share them or feed into the the monster like that. And then a more serious one was maybe people saw it. A viral post went around that advised people, if you ever get lost while hiking or stranded with a broken down car, and you notice that your phone is going to die, that you can or has no signal, you can change your voicemail on your phone to a message that gives your approximate location. This would be your outgoing thing saying it's me and it's this day at this time and I'm here and here's what happened and blah, blah, blah. And that even if your phone dies or stops working, voicemail still works and anyone calling your phone will hear the message and know where to find you or where to send help. Okay, wow, that's a really good life-saving tip. I love that. That's the kind of thing I would I would in my regular life immediately share and say, wow, that's really cool. Um, but then it got shared thousands of times and people came out and said, no, 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 this, that's, that's not 
police and rescue departments are saying this action can do more harm than good. It shouldn't be the sole means of communication. If you have enough battery and signal, like you should be trying to send texts and calls. Mm-hmm. You should try a, an email, anything to get your GPS location pinging off the towers. Um, maintain your battery life for as long as possible by um, only using your phone to contact help and putting your phone in airplane mode, shutting off Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capabilities. That again is like no one, no one. I, I, I'm. Let's assume that the person who shared that in the first place was trying to help genuinely. Mm-hmm. They're not sensational, although it can work in either case. If I share it and then I end up being wrong, I mean, how hard would it be to, for me to be like, I saw somebody, Jenna Fisher from the office, posted it and then. Four hours later posted, like, this has been debunked. Like, don't do this. We don't recommend this. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not mad at Jenna Fisher because she's like uh, assaulted her her own um, credibility. She's, in fact, increased my opinion of her Mm -hmm. and her credibility that she is willing, like, to not just take it down, but to say, hey, for anyone who saw this, I ended up being wrong. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Here's the real info. I think if we all could do more of that and, again, just getting your news from multiple places, do a fact check if you think it's too good to be true. It might be. And like not being afraid to be wrong, we would be better off, way better off. That's such a good point about not being afraid to be wrong. I yeah. think we're, we get defensive so fast about things that we think are true. And there's an element of humility we need to bring to this as well, knowing that, yeah, you, you can be wrong. You can have wrong information. I feel like of anything, that's something that having conversations with people who don't agree right. with you can teach you because yeah. a lot of times you you don't even know necessarily that your information is wrong or that you're looking at it from a biased way until you talk to someone who doesn't agree. And that's really where you can get this, which is yet another reason why you shouldn't just be talking to people who agree with you. For sure. And I love those examples because on this podcast, we're so focused on like politics and, and everything like that. But those are two non- political examples that follow the same trend of something that goes viral, something that is, you know, misinformation or fake news or whatever, but it does like have ramifications. So I like that those examples, because that takes the partisanship out of it and just focuses on the phenomenon. And, and I think that the recommendations that you guys have made still apply, right? Wait, fact check, um, you know, look at it from multiple angles. So I think that was really, um, good of you to share those examples, Cass. Thank you. And you know, what, what if we start with those ones, right? Again, that's not a political example. I know that that's primarily the kinds of things that we talk about here on the reframers, but because I'm sitting here finding it so easy to say, this is what we should do. And this is the best way to read the news. <laughs> I'm going to try to challenge myself this next week or so, or maybe forever really is, is the real commitment here to try and engage my brain to do that with things that are news political based that Mm. I don't immediately agree with that. I immediately think, ah, that's typical. (laughs) That's my John Mulaney voice. And I just, (laughs) I would love to, I would love to say we're perfect at something just once, but again, these are not things that any of us are experts at. And I agree with Aaron, like you, you can just as much get caught in a conversation echo chamber as you can a news echo chamber. Like these are real things that happen and we want to be able to be hearing other ideas and be critical of our own. And I would be remiss if I didn't make one comment here just about how much I respect and value journalists. And it's personal for me because my mom was a journalist. So I grew up with a journalist challenging my thoughts and asking me questions and making sure that, you know, I was thinking about things and it's really, it's just a really, really valuable skill. It's an important thing. And I think they're very important for just democracy and making sure that the government is telling the truth and that we are being told things that are correct. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. We're lucky to have, we're, we're lucky to have what we have. And I I don't think that that means that we can't improve, but Mm -hmm. we're so lucky. Like we started at the beginning, 13%. And not even government, but, you know, businesses and sports teams and all this stuff. I mean, I'm seeing there's like kind of a wave right now of people being like suspended or fired from NHL teams because of like sexual assault stuff. And that's, you know, journalists breaking that news in, you know, hockey locker rooms. Like it's not, it doesn't matter our tax rate or immigration law or infrastructure, but it matters to those people's lives. And that's still journalists. So even if you're not a journalist in 
know, politics, like it still is a valuable skill set. So I, I couldn't agree more. Well, anything else today? I, I think this is a good first episode for talking about journalism, but uh, anything else you guys want to bring up? I don't think so. I think that's it. Well, I'm just always grateful for the three of us, for you two getting together and talking about things like this. I am thankful to those of you who have chosen to join us today and to listen along. It's our mission that more and more people feel like we can all share the, the, the goals and take up the mantle of demanding more. Like our country is so capable. We have such incredible people and we have a really good system, even when pieces look rusty or out of place, like we have all the tools available to us that we could ever want to make things better. I couldn't be more honored that we get to talk about it, that we have the right in a country to talk about it and not have to like do this in a bunker somewhere. And I just think to be complacent and not ever think about it, it would, it would be quite a shame. So I'm thankful and grateful that we can have these conversations and continue to discuss and disagree and still be friends. Very well said. Thanks everybody for joining us. If you got all the way here and you still like what you have to, (laughs) what you have to hear, like what we have to say, uh, we would love for you to rate and review us anywhere you've listened, Apple podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Um, You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook or in all the places. So Please find us, be our friend, and let us know what you'd like to talk about next. Have a good week. See you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 